So um, what are we here to discuss? As the title says, Millennials, Youth Quake or Snowflakes? My um, thinking for this session started when I read about some research released by the Prince's Trust that said 58% of 16 to 25-year-olds believed recent political events made them feel more anxious and 28% felt they were out of control of their lives. And that got me thinking about what that meant politically, what it meant personally for these people and how um, we can continue to move as historical actors upon the world. Um, so we do have a great panel to um, help us discuss these matters, and I'll be introducing them in the order they're speaking. First, we've got Jenny. Jenny Bristow is a senior lecturer in sociology at Canterbury Christchurch University. Jenny is the author of several books, including The Sociology of Generations, New Directions and Challenges, Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and Standing Up to Super, Super Nanny. She's also co-author of Parenting Culture, which I can personally recommend is brilliant, and licensed to hug. Next, we'll have um, Bradley. Bradley is studying towards his PhD at the University of Lincoln in Social Sciences, researching youth political engagement, so very um, uh, pressing for this, for this discussion. He's a Labour Party activist and was the postgraduate officer at Lincoln Students' Union last year, and I believe is standing for re-election. Been elected now. Been elected, well done. He is also the co-editor of Bright Green, a online magazine that looks at many different issues around mental health, uh, politics and psychology, I believe, as well. Um, next on my far left uh, and last, last of all, we've got Eliza. She's an academic and businesswoman. In 2016, she set up a consultancy service helping companies navigate the complex intergenerational landscape now, the, now dominating politics, work and the marketplace. She is currently a visiting lecturer at King's College London and author of God and Mrs. Thatcher, The Battle for Britain's Soul. She's currently researching um, the habits, tastes and beliefs of Gen Y and Gen Z. So can we have a round of applause for all the speakers, please? So to kick us off, Jenny. Thanks, Christopher, and th thanks for the invitation. Um, so, youthquake or snowflakes? Um, just to begin with, I just wondered if there was anyone here who actually identifies as a snowflake. <laughs> no, no. Great. So we can all agree then that the, the label snowflake generation is, isn't exactly a positive one, um, and I'm not really surprised that it, it winds a lot of young people up. Um, my interest, my research area is in the cultural script of generations, so really looking at how generations are described versus a more kind of nuanced understanding of how they really are. Um, so, uh, as Christopher said, I, I've written about the baby boomer generation, um, and one of the uh, things I think is very interesting about the baby boomers is that there's this kind of idea that they're all like uh, Pats and Eddie, you know, in absolutely fabulous, they're all living it up, you know, um, drinking lots on the golf course, everything else. Actually, if you meet people of the baby boomer generation, you'll realize that, like any other generation, there's a whole breadth of experience there, and you can't uh, just categorize them as one thing. Um, and so my starting point is, I, I would say the same for young people, whether you call them millennials, Generation Z, or whoever. However, I do think generational, uh, I, think, do, I think, think generations are real to the extent that I, I think a generational outlook is informed by your experience, you know, your experience of history, the times you grow up in. Um, and these labels come about for a purpose. They come about, I think, in a nutshell, part, partly because at any point in time, um, a certain section of a generation will capture the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, uh, in a way that then resonates with the wider 
cultural imagination. Um, and that's what I really think about the snowflake generation. I think there's a, um, a sense now um, about what, what it means to be human, what the zeitgeist is, what young people are, that this kind of label snowflake generation really captures. And it, and it captures, it, as everyone indicates, encapsulates the tendency to see the world in terms of um, a constant series of slights to a very fragile sense of personal identity, and one that emphasizes the harm all the time caused by speech and ideas. So when you were saying, you know, um, snowflake generation means, you know, people are very oversensitive, they want to be protected, all the rest of it. it it's that sort of idea of um, wanting uh, all the time protection from harm, but the sense that harm is all around us, you know, and that anyone who says something critical of you or criticizes you in some way is going to really harm your sense of self-identity. Now, as I indicated, I don't think young people are like that at all. Um, I mean, well, all young people are like that at all. I'm not surprised there's not that many self-proclaimed snowflakes here, because if you were, you wouldn't be at a thing called the Battle of Ideas. Um, I'm very privileged in that I work in a university and I spend a lot of time with young people. Um, and, you know, I have students who deal with the most tremendous problems, really, whether they're personal problems, health problems, mental health problems, but kind of get on with it. They, you know, hold down jobs and studies and look after their families and, and everything else. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of young people who really don't conform to the, the, the label of the snowflake generation. Um, at the same time, I think uh, there's a way in which this narrative has been taken on board by younger people and certainly then amplified through discussions about younger people that um, gives them a, a way of framing their experience and, and making sense of it. And to that extent, I think it's, uh, it's important and um, quite harmful. Um, I don't think we should see the world as a, a series of slights against our personal identity. I think we should be looking to something bigger and beyond ourselves. And I think that's really the responsibility of older generations in this discussion about snowflakes, not to point at young people and go, oh, aren't they all pathetic? Um, but to kind of, you know, uh, wise up to your adult responsibility and work with young people in thinking about, well, what could be a more challenging and more positive and more genuine, really, account of human experience um, and what can be gained by engaging in the world? So this brings me on to the youthquake. Um, the term youthquake, I think we should view in a, a, a similarly critical way to the, to the snowflake term. Um, I mean, it was obviously, obviously talked about quite a lot in relation to the recent general election and the, uh, the relatively high youth turnout for the Corbyn vote. Um, I mean, it's worth noting that, I mean, the turnout was relatively high. You know, more young people did turn out to vote than they had done in previous elections in recent history, although turnout stats are pretty unreliable. Um, I think that's a very, very good thing. I think it's interesting that what was also was not recognised was that youth turnout was quite high in the EU referendum as well, actually. Um, and uh, what that said to me was that when there's something on the table for people to get engaged in and to uh, vote for, then that's what makes young people turn out to vote. Um, so I think the increase in turnout, which I wouldn't get overexcited about, it wasn't like seismic, but I think it will, it indicates that young people will vote when it seems to be something meaningful to vote for. And I think it also challenges the assumption that's been going on for a long time, even when I was, uh, well, first of voting age, really, 
that young people are just kind of apathetic, you know, they're lazy, they don't vote because, you know, they can't be bothered, or, which I've always found was even worse, the idea that young people really need some other way of getting in, so they need to be voting online, or they need to be voting at the age of 16, or 15, or 3, or something, to kind of get them into the habit, or they need bribing with this, that, or the other. Um, and I think the, the fact that young people do show that they can vote when they want to uh, challenges that assumption. But I think we shouldn't kid ourselves or patronise young people by presenting this relative increase in, uh, in voter turnout as something seismic. I think what it shows is that um, it's good that uh, um, young people, when they vote, can engage in a democratic dialogue. And I think that's particularly important at the moment when uh, there's so many kind of quite febrile protests going on and there's a lot of what passes for political activity, which is about cutting, you know, shutting things down or telling people to shut up or go away, um, that really is outside of the way in which democratic decisions are, are made. So being encouraging for young people to participate in democracy um, is, is really, really good. But I've been shocked that the response to that so-called youthquake has almost been the opposite, that what's been What's been uh, suggested, really, is that the vote of older people should be deauthorized, that it's somehow you know, less significant than the vote of younger people, that the vote by young people is more meaningful than the vote by older, uh, older generations. And this takes what appears to be an engagement with democracy in a profoundly undemocratic direction, which I think is bad for politics and also bad for young people. Okay, thank you very much, Jane. And Bradley, if you'd like to uh, take the mic. Yeah. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Is this, yeah. Um, yeah, so I want to I start with a caveat, and I think it's important. I think when it comes to mental health, both when you're talking on a kind of a, a societal level, but also on an individual level, mental health is actually very complex. Um, and some of the arguments I'm going to put forward here um, should not be taken as um, saying this is the only or perhaps even the main um, cause or, uh, or, or factor in, in trends in mental health, but I think it's an area that's perhaps not talked about enough. Um, so I think, and that's, a, I think, an ongoing caveat that we need for these discussions. Um, when I first got engaged in politics, probably about uh, four or five years ago, um, I joined the Green Party, um, and I was quite involved in the Young Greens um, for a number of years. Um, and I, perhaps in the spirit of the battle of ideas, but maybe not always in the spirit of uh, left-wing activism, I kind of naively jumped straight in with kind of willing to debate anything and, and really willing to kind of, kind of get involved in any discussion, um, which didn't always go down well. Um, so th there were times when I was kind of, uh, reprimanded for saying things that were, were, I was told were really offensive that I just genuinely didn't realise that w would be considered as such. Um, there were times when I was told I couldn't um, express my opinion on a certain topic um, because, because of my gender or because of my sexuality um, uh, and things like that. Um, and that, that was very frustrating for me and it kind of led me to be a bit disillusioned um, with how, with how some, some sections of left-wing politics uh, function. But um, throughout my time with the Greens, I began to, to kind of appreciate perhaps why some of that backlash was coming from. Um, and I began to, to appreciate, uh, and it, it's a word a lot of people in this room might not like, but I began to appreciate the need to, to check my privilege um, and it, to understand the issues that, that surround um, what is sometimes um, lumped together as identity politics. Um, and when I began to realise, and that's not to say that there aren't instances of people you know, getting offended over stupid things and people uh, be, being uh, dismissive of other people um, for stupid reasons, that still absolutely happens. And it, I still encounter it uh, in left-wing politics, but I think it's perhaps a smaller um, factor within left-wing politics than people uh, perhaps sometimes represent it as. Um, 
But with that, it became a bit of a pride, actually, in my generation. And that's perhaps not something we always hear when we talk, when we talk about youth politics. Because what underlies a lot of what's called identity politics and, and maybe kind of uh, safe spaces and, and snowflakeism um, is actually a, a desire to try and correct both historical and contemporary injustices in society. And I'm actually very proud of my generation for doing that. And yes, sometimes we do that in a messy way. And yes, sometimes we overstep marks. Um, but I do think there is a genuine desire amongst a lot of people in my generation to do that. And I'm very proud that we do. Um, and this comes on to the, this idea of us being an apathetic generation. Um, th this is what I study. I've been studying um, youth political engagement for a number of years now. Um, and I, I'm yet to meet, in significant numbers, young people that don't care about politics in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think what we do have is a profound disillusionment with traditional political institutions, but not with political issues. Students care, uh, young people care about tuition fees, about the NHS, about the economy, about Brexit. Of course they care. I think what we're seeing is, is a, a situation where a generation that perhaps doesn't have faith in traditional political institutions um, to be a vehicle for social change. Um, and, and it feels in some ways that we can't win. So one, uh, one minute we're being caught, told that we're apathetic as a generation, um, and then the next minute, um, we are engaging around what might be called identity politics, and we're told, oh, well, well no, that, that, that's just being a snowflake. So it's either, we, we're either apathetic or, or we're snowflakes. So we, we want you to engage in politics, but not that way, not that way. And I think it's a, a bit of a frustrating message that our generation gets sometimes um, from perhaps older generations. Um, that said, uh, you know, so I don't think we're apathetic, and I don't think we're snowflakes, but I do think there is a profound change happening in, in how young people and how my generation engage with, uh, with politics and engage with the ideas of social change. And I've already alluded to that a little bit. I think part of it is this kind of erosion in the belief of traditional political institutions to, to be vehicles for change. I also think part of it is borne out in economic, political, and social change. Now, people don't always like the word, but I'm going to use it because I think it's important we use it. And I think the, the word we need to, to factor in is neoliberalism. And I think it, it's affected society in a way that's quite um, alienating. I think it's quite individualistic. And I think it's quite consumerist, and it's based on market systems. Now, we can debate the merits of neoliberal policy here, there, and everywhere. Um, that's perhaps beyond the scope of this debate. But I do think it has an impact in terms of how people approach social change in politics and that it's seen from a more individualistic and consumerist lens. And at the same time, our faith in, in the state and the collective uh, political institutions has eroded. So I think that characterizes at least some of the changes we're seeing in how young people do politics. And of course, this also comes along with a whole, a whole package of other reforms that are going to impact mental health in terms of reductions in welfare spending, some of which will directly impact mental health budgets, um, struggling to, to be able to pay rent, struggling to get onto the property ladder, uh, and, and, and on all sorts of different uh, precarious labor market, what perhaps neoliberals might like to call a flexible labor market. Um, I think all of these tie into mental health. You know, the, the blurb mentions kind of Brexit and Trump. I think all these are other social factors that have emerged and perhaps disproportionately affected millennials um, that actually need to be factored in when we talk about mental health. Um, and I also think maybe, and I, and I think you're right in that we um, shouldn't read too much into the 2017 um, general election turnout, um, but I do think maybe, just maybe, we're starting to see uh, millennials say, actually, we've had enough of this. And, and it's, not, it's not a coherent movement. There's not a coherent ideology behind it. There's not a huge mass uh, protests going on as such. But I think maybe the general election was beginning to be a tipping point. And if it turns into a fully-fledged, uh, fully re-engaged youth uh, politics, it will depend on how organizations like the Labour Party and others um, mobilize young people and how they organize in these next few years. Um, so I guess to, to sum up what I'm trying to say, 
is that I think the be a useful, if not the only lens, to view youth politics and youth mental health under is, um, is a, a politics that has both, both been shaped by, but is perhaps also beginning to react to uh, neoliberal policy. Thank you. Thank you, Bradley and Eliza. Okay, I've got a new definition of snowflake for you. Who's scared of that mouse running around? <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly am, so that makes me a snowflake. Um, so hands up those born between 1942 and 1965. Okay, you're the much derided denigrated baby boomers. Okay, hands up those born between 1966 and 1979. Okay, you're the forgotten generation Xs. No, re no one really refers to you or cares what you do. Um, <laughs> hands up those born after 1976, so 1980 to 1997. Okay, you're the millennials. What everyone and who everyone is talking about. And anyone born after that, hands up. Okay, so you're Generation Z. And this debate has been framed around millennials. And in fact, in my view, there's a real difference between millennials and Generation Zs. And the chief difference, of course, is that millennials largely came through their adolescence in a period of boom, whereas Generation Zers have only really known bust. And they were 10 years old, broadly speaking, when the iPhone was launched, 10 years old when Barack Obama came to power, 10 years old when Lehman Street, uh, Lehman Street, Lehman Brothers went down. So they have been entirely shaped by the financial crash. Their economics, their politics, their morality is defined by their youth and the politics that have governed that period. Now let's get back to the basic point. Every generation in history, whether it be the Second World War generation, whether it be the 60s generation, whether it be the 80s generation, or now, have been determined, and it's been their job to a, great to a great degree, to challenge and rock the status quo, to question what is the norm, to defy their parents, to rebel against society, to come up with new labels, to generate a new consensus and frame and shape the world in their image, right? And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing millennials and especially Generation Zers just going, nah, that's not how we want to see the world be created. That's not what we want to see happen. This is what concerns us. These are our priorities. These are the things we want to see changed. And one of the most obvious things, I think, and the most interesting ways that that's happening is the whole gender debate. And it's the new frontier, it's the new cultural war, the way in which gender, not sexuality as such, but gender is being defined by Generation Z in particular. It's not who am I allowed to sleep with. That was the battles of the 60s. That was when homosexuality was decriminalized. That was when women were given the pill. Now it's about what am I allowed to identify as, okay? And statistics actually show that Generation Z have much less sex than their parents at their age, but actually what they're chiefly concerned with is their identity. And this is the new frontier of identity politics. What are you identifying as? And we've got LGBTQI, we're running out of letters in the alphabet to di di dissect and divide society sexually and in terms of gender. 
So it's about individual discovery rather than actual pleasure. And that's fine, because actually what we're seeing is, is that Generation Z are challenging the status quo of gender and making it anew in their image. The second way in which they're challenging the status quo is in the whole safe space debates. And as someone that's worked in a university, worked with young people, and indeed set up a business in which I seek to train um, millennials and gener Generation Zs for the workplace, I see their number one question as what is the di what, what in what sense is that employer or that organization going to sit with my values? In what ways, you know, trigger warnings are a reality within university campuses, safe spaces, you know, nice safe spaces almost with lots of cushions and cats for them to cuddle if they're feeling slightly vulnerable having, you know, been exposed to certain literature. It's a real problem within campus university and it's revealing the generation gap within universities. But as other people have all have argued, not me, but I tend to agree with them, we have created, our parents created a health and safety molly-coddled culture that Generation Z and millennials have grown up with in which they are prioritized to feel things rather than think things. If I'm a millennial or a Gen Z, I feel things, I don't think things. Feelings are now important than thoughts. So it's no wonder, I think, that they are carrying that ethos into adulthood. The third way that they are renewing the status quo is they are seeking to, maybe through Jeremy Corbyn or through other means, to reconnect the individual with the state. They've grown up in the period of the financial crash. They do not believe in market forces to create good in society. Hardly surprising that they are putting their energy, effort, and votes towards Jeremy Corbyn, who is very, very old school in his political views, but they can hear a man that is genuinely saying, let's reconnect the individual social contract with the state, be it education, healthcare, jobs. Now, I don't, however, believe that Generation Z are inherently left-wing. Thank you. I think that actually they are more likely to be loyal to their mobile phone tariff than they are a political party. I do think Jeremy Corbyn has the attraction of what perhaps is a record player in an iPod age. He's authentic, even if he is playing rather old school um, anthems. I think actually the generation, millennials and Generation Z, have grown up in a highly individualistic, highly entrepreneurial age in which market forces are the reality, even if, an, albeit an unwanted one, and so therefore it's wrong to characterise them as inherently left-wing. But what are they are justifying, justifiably doing is saying, hang on a minute, everything that our parents bought into in the Thatcher years have basically screwed us. We're having to pay for our education. We're having harsher access to the job market. We're not likely to buy a house or be able to buy a house. Everything our parents prized and benefited from, we are not. And that is causing all sorts of intergenerational tension and what is known and becoming known as the generation gap. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so... Before we go out, I just want to throw a quick question out to the whole panel. Um, 
One of the big concerns for me as a Leave voter is that my generation didn't vote Leave and didn't see it as a chance to kind of change history and, and take on take on democracy. And, and this kind of one of one of the things which I found very um, very uh, uh, sorry very worrying about the Prince's Trust research is that young people didn't seem to think of themselves as historical actors and as people who could change the world. As as Eliza just pointed out, possibly where they're too reliant upon the state to, to, to move in and do things for them. So um, could I just ask the panel to come back on that? I'll, I'll start with you, Bradley, please. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with this idea that, that my generation and, and, and the next generation are uh, expecting the state to step in in a... In a I don't, maybe to, to, to some extent there is, there is perhaps some level of... Uh, I don't like to use the word Molly Collins because I think, I think it's quite patronising and quite condescending towards young people. I think, I think there is a, a recognition of... I think the blurb refers to a kinder, kind of gentler politics in, in Corbynesque kind of language. I think, I think there is an element of that within our generation. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that is particularly a factor within, within the um, Brexit vote. Um, as, somewhat, as, a, as a young person that voted Remain, um, I simply don't think um, the arguments around um, democracy and trade deals and all the rest of it were really there. And I, I would hope, um, although I don't, know, I don't know what the statistics are on youth turnout in Brexit. Does anyone know? More, uh, more, pe- more, more people in, uh, voted for Brexit, young people voted for Brexit in London than voted for Sadiq Khan for the London mayoralty. So there is, a, there is a sense in which actually the, the Brexit vote... For the young people voted. There were quite a lot of Brexiteers amongst the younger voters. Mm. It's not as clean cut as just saying, oh, they were all Remainers, for sure. Yeah, but I, I don't know if that's a particular factor within the Brexit vote. I, I think perhaps, I think simply the arguments around um, democracy and around trade deals simply didn't convince perhaps a lot of our generation. And it was also the status quo. We'd kind of known nothing other than the European Union. I think that was probably a, a factor within us as well. Okay. And Eliza, would you like to come in on our young um, people? Start I don't. I genuinely don't think, and I've, I've looked at statistics on this, that the under-25s were pro-EU. They were pro-European and they were internationalist. But I don't think they had a great ideological investment, unlike, say, young people in Germany, to the European Union. It's important to see the fact that most millennials, more millennials have passports than driving licenses in the UK. They are the great traveling generation. They're the gap year kids. They've you know, gone sh- on short city break- breaks to Europe. They are completely conditioned by travel and see travel as an opportunity and saw Brexit as an obstruction to that lifestyle choice. I also think that they are internationalist because they are idealistic. And I think that the Brexit remain leave discussion was seen as a kind of dichotomy between a sort of um, a little Englander notion of Brexit and an international liberal version of but, um, Remain. Sorry to put in, but in terms of the way in which young people now say they're so anxious and don't have control of their lives, do you think young people can still think of themselves as historical actors in, in the way that previous generations once did? Um, I think I think the youth of the, the 1960s and the youth of the 1980s would would have said then that they felt as powerless and as um, anxious as the the youth of today do. I think it's unaf- unavoidable to think that the power structures are against you when you're young. <laughs> okay, thanks, and Jenny. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of uh, agree with Eliza on the. Um 
On the Brexit vote, I mean, I think it's interesting that about a third of young people did vote leave, actually. And of the baby boomers, about half voted leave <laughs> and half voted remain. Um, but we, that's not the image that we get. The image we get is all young people voted against Brexit, all the baby boomers just sold their children's future out and voted to, you know, uh, voted to leave. And it's like, I think it's a really good example of how generation has become weaponized in debates about politics at the moment, which I think is really, really unhelpful. It doesn't reflect how young people, or indeed any generation, kind of actually see the world. When you ask them, when surveys ask people, what do you think the big problems are? They'll say, I'm wages, or this, that, or the other. They don't go, oh, the baby boomers. Um, and yet there's this kind of thing coming from both parties. I mean, in the 2017 general election, both the Conservatives and the Corbyn campaign shamelessly kind of promoted this notion of intergenerational strife to try and construct this narrative of how people should see their, should see their problems. Um, and I think that's, that's really, really, uh, really divisive. Okay, great. Thanks very much. And can you see a show of hands? And have you got the mic there? Yep. Can, uh, so have some hands up. Okay, so we'll go to uh, this guy in the uh, gingham shed there, and then we'll go back to the guy there who had his hand up. Yeah. Hello. Um, thank you. I'm, that, I really enjoyed a lot of that. Uh, something I want to maybe press you guys on is about this distinction that we often assume between these different generations. Uh, one of the comments was made uh, by, thank you, Bradley, was that um, sort of a this generation is a response to neoliberalism, it's a reaction against neoliberalism, it's a challenge to it. Um, I don't really see that as the case. I see, I see it more as an intensification of this existing trends within the previous generations. The, 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 the idea of the atomized individual um, relating to others primarily through choice, through voluntary relationships, has really, I think, just been intensified. Um, the, the, the notion... Uh, really what's happened, it's the, there's been an acceptance of all those concepts, an acceptance of those givens, but there's been a, a reversal, a, a transvaluation, a turning on its head of one key issue I see it, see it as, and it's a question of attitude. It's a, it's, it's a question of how we respond to power, how we respond to challenges. If we see it, if we see the world as a place where we can venture out, where we see ourselves, as Chris described, as historical actors, agents of change, we, we will... Uh, puff out our chests and go forward. Um, we, will, we will ask for freedom from intervention and seek to act ourselves. But if we're what uh, uh, Nietzsche described as, uh, as, as hollow-chested men, if, if we puff out our chest but there's nothing there, what we're gonna do is not ask for freedom, but we, what we're gonna do is ask for security. We're gonna ask for safe spaces. And, every, and, it's, and that leads to radical differences in how we conceive of politics and the function of the state, but it ultimately, the difference between the two is almost non-existence. It's just attitude. Okay, thank you. So there is a question there, and then there's someone over here, and then we'll go to the guy at the back. Um, I, while I'm in no way in support of shying away from meaningful debate, and you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea to avoid meaningful issues just to make sure everybody feels like, safe about it and good about it, um, I do find describing uh, the reaction of this new generation as a millennial slash Generation Z said people um, as people who are emotional rather than thinking about things, um, a little bit of like unnecessary hyperbole because the idea that there's an emotional reaction rather than thinking is somewhat polarizing. I find you can say that, yes, there is an emotional reaction, but there is a lot of thought behind that. There are people who feel deprived of the privileges they, that their parents had. The job market is more difficult. 
loans are more expensive, and even when adjusted for inflation, people are stuck with loans for their own education that are ridiculously, as ridiculous compared to what their parents had. So I find, in many ways, an emotional reaction to something that, to a conclusion that you've come to by rational thought is fair, and you can see that coming. I mean, if you look at the situation these days. Uh, I'm going to come to this guy, then there's a guy right at the back, and then we'll come back, and then we'll go back out. Uh, then to you, do you, and someone over there. Yeah, so I talk, it's really interesting, because my experience coming to university, to this country in 2012, was that actually people from my, of my age, they weren't actually as involved in politics as, as they were back in Spain. And that's because Spain the crisis, lived a crisis that was a lot more you know, difficult. And so my, my whole generation there was influenced by that. And then I came to the UK where the crisis had not impacted in the same way. And actually, I, I remember being in a lecture and I'm, I'm one of our lecturers saying, how many of you in the room has ever been to a political protest? And it was just me raising the hand, you know. Like nobody, I actually found like a really alienated um, generation that like actually didn't weren't was not involved in politics and I was doing you know an arts degree but really sort of politically involved arts degree you know um, so so that is it's interesting because my experience was completely different um, coming back to the point about uh, we are more emotional than rational I actually think I take that as a compliment actually in the sense of like the fact that we are able to understand you know what living in experiences and not just thinking rationally about something I think is so important I think Austerity is the effect of looking at the world as if it was a business and literally not having in account how people experience policy, which is what has caused then um, populism in Europe, you know, um, and a lot of the things that have happened, have happened now. So, you know, I, I would actually argue that that emotional um, capability is actually a benefit for us. Hey, thank you. There is a guy on the back wall. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to, um, Bradley, I think it was you talked about how this is a kind of a new movement, if you like. Um, I have a son who, who's at a performing arts college where progressive ideas tend to be quite prevalent. Um, and he said after the, the referendum, the EU referendum, he said there was lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth about this terrible result. And I asked him recently, you know, is, is this still going on? Because we see a lot of it on Twitter and places like that. And he says no one talks about it anymore. So... Um, is this something that, that is a passing fad or is it something that's going to go on in the future? I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps we might have to wait until the next election to see if that's the case. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Jenny, can I bring you in first? Uh, based on the research that you've done about generations and also the research you've done about parents and culture, how, how would you respond to this idea of that um, this generation or the millennials are emotional rather than thinking? Well, I think... I think they do think, um, and I think they do feel. I think what's happening is that they're, they're in a context where feelings and emotional responses are validated, provided they're the right feelings, okay? It's all right if you cry. It's not, it's not all right if you get angry. And some of you may remember being at primary school where you're told anger management techniques. It's a particular kind of emotion that you're allowed to express. Um, and everyone does it. If you watch, you know... I don't know, my kids maybe watched Junior MasterChef once, and I was really struck by how the kids, you know, they, they, they cry when they get the result. I'm so happy, I'm so sad. And it's like they're learning this script of how to respond to things. Now, that, that, that is, I think it's 
it's problematic as a way of engaging politically, you know, because you can only engage politically if you're prepared to have an argument out. And um, I think it's problematic to the extent that if young people do take that on and really behave like that, it becomes very difficult to break the walls down and have a discussion through. At the same time, I think <laughs> I'm very suspicious that a lot of what's happening is that the voice of young people is being appropriated by others um, as a way of giving kind of authority to their own arguments. I mean, again, Jeremy Corbyn, who's not authentic, by the way, mm -hmm. um, is completely opportunistic. Uh, David Willits on the other side, you know, I don't have any truck with either side of you know, the, the, the political debate in Britain. And, and I think this is really puts young people in a sort of an awkward situation because everyone's talking kind of about you and pretending that they are you. And I would rather the young people just said, no, this is what we think. And I will probably have an argument politically about it. But you, you can't do it when it's all this sort of smoke and mirrors, everyone pretending to be the friend of the kids. Okay, thank you. Um, Bradley, I'll bring you in now. Um, how, how do you think then that we respond to change in this kind of age of neoliberalism if it does or doesn't exist? Yeah, so just to, just to clarify what I was saying for the, for the speaker at the back, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying there is definitely this new radical youth politics emerging. I'm saying potentially we're beginning to see a signs of it, and, and it, it actually really relies on, on how certain organisations um, actually choose to mobilise and how, and how they organise around that. So I, I don't take a view of history as, as inevitably progressing. I think it's up to the, the choices of actors that are involved as to how that happens. And that, and that kind of comes on to the point about Corbyn. I mean, I, I love Corbyn. I think he's, I think he's brilliant. Um, but, and that, that's a whole other debate. But I think actually you, you, you potentially underestimate um, the, how, how some of the momentum around Corbyn has happened. And momentum is a key word. I think momentum as an organisation are, are part of that. Um, in, the, in, in terms of getting the youth vote out in 2017, I think there's, there's a lot of research coming out at the moment and it's perhaps still too early to, to kind of empirically be able to, to, to see it. But... There's a lot of stuff there about how, um, yes, there was a lot of paid advertisements on Facebook and, and Twitter and things like that, um, but also there was a lot of organic kind of sharing um, amongst young people, partly facilitated by momentum, and also that was also encouraging young people to get out on doorsteps and, and to campaign for Labour. Um, and, that, and some of that was, it was, was rooted in how Bernie Sanders' teams ran their campaign and there's stuff on that in the book called uh, Rules for Revolutionaries. Um, but I think actually what, what we saw a beginning of with how Labour mobilised in 2017 was a bit more of an organic way of organising than perhaps we've seen from political parties in quite some time. Now, it's not perfect, uh, that's a, a slight stereotype of how it worked, but I think we're beginning to see a process of that. Um, so I actually, I actually think um, Cor Corbyn, maybe not Corbyn himself, but the Corbyn campaign was probably a bit more authentic than we've seen in a political campaign in some time. And, and just quickly on this, this whole kind of emotion and rationality thing, as a psychologist, I get really upset about this because even on a neurological level, um, emotions and reason aren't these diametrically opposed forces that we're made to see them as. They actually work in tandem with each other. Um, so, and I think, I think it was the blurb, the online blurb for this um, said, are we seeing a, a politics based on emotion and morality rather than policy and ideology? And I, I, I wouldn't want... Uh, a movement to not have any of those things and I don't see them as diametrically opposed things yes I, I think there is ideology there and I think there's, there's policy there but I wouldn't want any of those things to be uninformed by emotion and morality okay thank you um, Eliza and to you okay. I guess through your work with uh, Grad Train and the other things you do you meet lots of young people so based on what the gentleman the Spanish gentleman over here said how, how do you think different people engage with politics in different ways um, so just on the emotional rational, think-feel dichotomy. You're absolutely right. I only had seven minutes, so cut me some flack on the, the reductive 
analysis that I offered you. But I do, um, I do think that there has been a prioritizing of emotion and feeling. And that was something that your parents encouraged. It's not something that you discovered at university or discovered in your teens. It's something that your parents encouraged growing up in a, in a, in a society in which emotions have outward display of emotions have just been encouraged more, more and more over the last 30 years. I think what's interesting, actually, is that when you consider that Generation Z, and indeed millennials, are the best educated generation in history, 50% of millennials have first degrees, 32% of millennials have second degrees. So you are the most educated generation in history, and yet you're treated like the stupidest, okay? <laughs> and I think there's absolutely something in that notion of, of let's, you know, older people trying to speak for you and trying to misconstrue and misrepresent what you're thinking. I was teaching in China a couple of years ago, and what struck me teaching Chinese millennials is the way in which they have grown up with parents who grew up in a communist, strict communist regime, and they themselves have come to adulthood in a basically a capitalist, globalist China. And they have really, they are like the baby boomers of the West. They are prioritizing buying a house, getting a car, routes to respectability, just like keeping up with the Joneses was in the 1960s. And it seems to me that actually what Western millennials and Generation Zs have to think about is, and I can see this in universities, is you are no longer just competing with your peers in the UK. You are no longer com just competing with your peers in the West. This is a global competition for jobs, for um, meat, for food, for, for opportunities, for everything. And that is something that previous generations in the West have never had to contend with. And we are seeing it now. And the answer, guess what, is not Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you. So there were some more questions, I think, the gentleman in the, in the yellow shirt here. And then we'll go to the young lady there. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll just keep your hands up in a minute. Um, well, it's kind of already kind of briefly been covered about kind of attitudes to it. Um, and I think I was anticipating a slightly more anti-young um, approach in the Claire Fox kind of style. Um, <laughs> but um, I was just wondering if you could clarify what you think your um, solution is to this problem, because there clearly is some kind of problem that's going on, um, but it seems like no one really has an idea. And if we all kind of... Lots of old people like to laugh about all the bloody snowflakes. Oh, ha, 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 ha. They're always complaining about this, complaining about that, safe spaces and calling them sissies and kind of saying, who identifies as a snowflake? No one actually did identify as a snowflake because I don't think anyone really does. And I think it's more of a kind of exaggeration. And, I mean, it can also be used towards all age groups by people to disarm an argument. Um, but I was wondering what your solution was. Uh, yeah, basically. Thank you. Um, we'll go to the young, young woman just on the uh, front, front there, yeah. Hi, I have two like questioning point type things. And my first is um, a bit unrelated to what's been talked about so far. Um, but it's what do you think is the difference between 
youths and like the generation as like a whole. So there was points about how millennials are particularly idealistic and how they think they're going to be like the ones to change the world. But surely every generation as young people has this idealistic view of the world and thinks they're, they're going to be the generation who's going to turn it all around. So I was wondering how do you think this is specific to millennials and Generation Zers and how as they grow up, how do you think that might change and what is going to shape the millennials when they're 40, etc.? Um, and my second point is going sort of more back to like the emotions thing and something I feel is really stemmed from the emotions debate is millennials and generation um, that is willingness to talk about mental health and about their emotions in a positive way which is having good impacts in our society so if you look at um, suicide being the greatest cause of death in men under 50 I'm really proud that our generation is the one who's talking about that and who's trying to do a difference of it and I was just wondering why does that then make a snowflakes that we're trying to have a positive impact on what is a genuinely really big problem. Okay, thank you. Uh, there's a woman here. And then we'll go to this woman in, in the striped shirt, and then we'll come back to the panel, and I'll go back out. Um, I've got a couple of questions to the panel. The first is to Eliza. I'm a little bit confused in terms of how you're describing things. I'm not sure whether you're just describing the debates as they are being described, back to us, or whether you actually yourself are laying the blame in the way that you're describing it. So, for example, you're very, very clearly saying that parents are responsible for the attitudes of their children, whereas I would say my, my experience of politics is that it is, it is the politicians who have emasculated the working class, who have used feminism as a way to um, put emotion before anger and in that sense the way that we are now experiencing politics should not be turned into a generational discussion but should be a political discussion to understand the political experience we've been through in the last 20 or 30 years and I think and this is why I want to clarify what you're saying because I don't want to accuse you wrongly but it seems to me that you are potentially in danger of of exacerbating an intergenerational conflict which I don't think is down to do with parents alone who are themselves influenced by a political experience. And a quick question to Bradley is, you keep describing this new movement, but I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. What does it mean? What does it mean in relation to the idea of sovereign, sovereignty? What does it mean in relation to intervention in Syria? What does it mean in relation to... So I'm just saying, what does that mean in practice? Or are you just saying that you're young and therefore you're, you should be... You should be um, given some credit just for the fact of being young. Hey, thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, I sort of want to carry on from what the lady behind me was saying. I mean, I also um, wonder, as someone who is a baby boomer, what exactly I have done to encourage younger people, some of whom are my children, to feel so fragile, um, disempowered. It would be co totally contrary to my own interests to want to do that, as with every other parent. And the other thing I'd like to ask the panel to think about and reflect on is every generation faces uh, challenges. Um, you know, there'll be generations who are too old to be here, who will have faced the First and Second World Wars, who will have faced uh, huge migrant crises across, uh, and refugee crises across Europe after the Second World War. You know, I wonder what it was like growing up as a young person in the Middle Ages. I can't imagine that was, you know, full of, would have had particular challenges as well. So I think it's very important for young people not to feel that they are uh, 
in a particularly dangerous time uh, and one in which they, we make them feel disempowered with the language that we use. It also concerns me that someone, something, somewhere has dreamed up this generation X, Y, Z, zero, whatever it is. I had no recollection of growing up with a name to my generation. That was given to me posthumously. This younger generation had been given a, a title already. I don't think they dreamt it up. Someone who writes a blog or a vlog or whatever has dreamt it up. And I think that's quite damaging. I think it's important for each generation to define itself, to find its own voice. And by labeling it before they've even left school, it worries me that that is extremely disempowering. Okay, thank you. Um, Eliza, can I bring you right in? And maybe you can talk a bit about your research on Thatcher and the 80s and talk about what, what, what type of struggles did the punk generation face then? Oh, we can blame Mrs. Thatcher for everything, right? Um, I mean that. Um, no, I think... I don't think Mrs... Th I don't really want to talk about Mrs. Thatcher because I want to directly respond to the two comments made by the, the ladies over there. Um, in my view, um, what you're saying is absolutely correct. These labels are being generated by sociologists, academics, journalists, broadly speaking, people with a self-interest in creating an anal an, a category of analysis for a generation, for sure. Um, and it's not something that young people can even identify with, let alone wear it as a badge of honour. So I think you're absolutely right in that front. Um, however, it is a convenient way of grouping people, and that's, broadly speaking, what people like to do with, the <laughs> with societies. Um, it's a generational cohort, a bit like saying women, is very hard to tease out the nuance. And there are so many nuances. You know, when I speak about Generation Z, I'm broadly speaking about cosmopolitan young people that live in cities. Everything I say does not really correspond with someone living who, in a rural area, leaving school at 16, getting married at 21, and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really hard to make generalizations, but you have to do it if you are talking about generations. On the point about am I blaming the parents or where's the agency and all your question. I think that firstly it's every young person's privilege to blame their mum and dad for everything that's wrong in their life, right? Um, but on a serious note, I, I genuinely think that there is a generation gap in the workplace. I go into businesses and I go in to help them address the generation gap in their workplace be it in terms of dealing with technology be it dealing with recruitment dealing with retention of people or management structures. There is a real generational problem within businesses, and they see it as more of an obstacle to progress than Brexit. So there's a generation gap in the workplace. There's also a generation gap in the marketplace. You will see that actually baby boomers have the most disposable income and the most leisure time, and yet most marketeers are obsessed with addressing Generation Z and millennials. Okay, Who uploads the most to Facebook? Baby boomers. You'd never know it from what's advertised on there. I also think there's a generation gap in politics. I don't, I don't think it's pure fabrication. I think there's capitalization for sure, but I do think there's a genuine gap, generation gap in politics, and I think there is currency to that notion of intergenerational unfairness. Baby boomers okay, have been much maligned, 
partly because they were the radicals and social progressives of the 1960s, and now they're the social conservatives um, of the, the, 2000, the 2000s, as it were. I think that baby boomers, if you look at their trajectory, have had, not had to fight a war, had free healthcare, free education for those that had access to it, had access to the housing market, will have a long, probably healthy retirement with access to free healthcare whilst they do it. And they have had you know, a pension scheme of which we will not see, certainly in my lifetime. So the case for saying that there has been intergenerational unfairness is there for sure. However, as my mum said to me, yeah, but you, you, know, you, you, know, you do things that I never had a chance to do. Just think how much you spend on eating out alone. I barely ate out when I was a kid. And you, you have more disposable income, access to technology, access to travel, access to all sorts of community involvement that I did not have because of the way the world's changed. So there's kind of, you know, there's two sides to every argument. But at the moment, I think the generation gap is a political argument that is gaining ground. And Corbyn is profiting from it, but so's Theresa May with her basically nice policies to pensioners. Okay, thanks, Eliza. Um, yeah, and Jenny, would you like to make any comments on what's just been said or, or are questions from the floor? Well, um, yeah, because I'm not sure. I have a different reading on the whole, uh, what generations mean and where the labels come from. I mean, I think, and also on the generational unfairness, they, I mean, you know, the baby boomers lived through the 70s, right? You know, they, they lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. They had a whole number of things go on in their formative years, um, which are neatly forgotten about in the discussion about the baby boomers as the lucky generation. Um, but what this discussion about the baby boomers indicates is that when we're talking about generations, I think we're really talking about time. We're talking about historical experience. And that's how generations do come to kind of find their own labels, but they're ones that don't speak to the totality of the experience. They speak to the thing that was most prominent in the zeitgeist at the time. Right? So the baby boomers are associated with the student protest movement and the counterculture, not because they were all hippies. Very few mm. of them were. In fact, most of them weren't even at university. That's another thing people forget about the baby boomers. 8% of you know, baby boomers got their free university place. And when they got there, they had to work hard. Right now, 50% almost of young people go to university. And, you know, they act as consumers and all of that. I don't think they're getting a good deal out of it. I'm not in favour of tuition fees. But we have to put this thing in perspective. So the, the, the baby boomers are seen to kind of symbolise the 60s. The Generation Xers, of which I am one, the lost generation and everything, who weren't idealistic, actually. That was the point that was made about Generation X, that they weren't idealistic. They came of age in a time of defeat and kind of with this tiny, shrinking generation who were like, oh listening to Kurt Cobain and being really miserable. Um, that's what defines Generation X. Of course, it doesn't define everybody of that cohort because you also had the yuppies who enjoyed the Thatch years. But, but it was Generation X that stuck. The millennials were originally called Generation Y um, because it came after Generation X until... <laughs> basically until 9-11 happened, and there was a recognition that that moment of history was formative, you know, that it did really speak to a particular generational outlook, and, and I think does a lot in explaining culturally why younger people, you know, are sort of forged in a culture of fear, I suppose. It's not something that they've got loads of control over. 
And then Generation Z, you know, it's just because it comes after Generation Y. I mean, really, you couldn't make it up. I mean, there will come a new label for Generation Z when they're old enough to have had some impact on the world. So this is what I think is important about generations. And just to go briefly onto the, the solution to snowflakery, you see, I think... That's why the snowflake thing is real, because this notion of the snowflake generation speaks to the, the zeitgeist. The, the spokespeople for the younger generation today are the ones who say, give me so safe spaces, stop offending me, I'm so scared, I'm so fragile. The solution to that, I think, there's a lot of it that needs to be done from older people. I think we need to grow up, right? We need to stop indulging this view and stop being scared of it ourselves, stop being scared of upsetting the kids, which is where I think the baby boomers may have gone a bit wrong, you know, because there's all that in indulgence going on, and to kind of stop it, stop flattering it. But I think young people themselves also have a responsibility not to just kind of, you know, take on board this whole, oh, okay, so you say you're offended, so I'll shut up. I think you've got to kind of argue with your peers and say, look, this doesn't represent all of us, and we want to say too. Hey, thank you. Um, Bradley, I'll bring you in there then and just ask uh, to kind of pick up some points on the floor, but also you said that when you started to get engaged in politics, you were kind of getting shut down in some ways or asked to check your privilege. Is that uh, an over-emotional reaction to the world? And if so, or if not, uh, what's the solution to either move past that or to kind of, uh, what's the solution to it, basically? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think we need a bit of context, actually, because... I mean, I'm hearing all these things um, from, from the floor and from the panellists about um, what, you, what it's like to be a millennial, uh, what kind of environment you have on university campuses. I don't recognise it, frankly. I mean, I, I'm going into my sixth year of university, and I think I can count on one hand the amount of times I've been at a lecture with a trigger warning on it. Uh, I probably, it perhaps slightly more prevalent of safe spaces, but then I also think that safe spaces have, have their place within certain contexts and actually are quite often misconstrued what they actually are in the press. Um, so I think, I think we need to maybe rein back a little bit from, from accepting the, the, the kind of headlines and, and, and the, uh, the, the kind of tabloid analysis of, of what life is like as a millennial. I, I simply don't recognise this kind of really fragile mental state that, that, all, that all young people are in and that we're constantly told that we need, we need protecting and that we're constantly wrapped up in cotton wool. I simply just don't recognise that, and I don't know many people that are characterised in that way. Um, in, and I think also context in, ter in terms of um, the economy. I mean, people are saying that every generation faces their challenges. They do, of course they do. Um, but I think if you, if you look at economic trends, there is a clear disparity in, in the economic condition that my generation is inheriting compared to previous ones. If you look at the period since, since Thatcher, we won't talk about it too much, but if you look at that, that period of what I would um, describe as neoliberal politics, you do see uh, more frequent economic crises um, you do see lower growth, lower productivity, uh, more stagnant wages. Uh, of course, you've got all sorts of problems like climate change uh, being thrown into the mix as well. So I think there is a genuine case for saying that my generation is inheriting um, an unstable economic system that is detrimental to, to our material prospects, which, is, of course, is going to impact on our mental health as well. Um, hey, sorry, on, I just want to get back out to the audience. Sorry, yeah, just, sorry to just very quickly on solution. Yeah. I don't have a solution to the Syrian refugee crisis, um, <laughs> but um, I think... Part of the solution is, is trying to re-engage young people in um, political party politics, but not in an uncritical way. I think they need to change party politics, but re-engage in it as well. Okay, thanks. So there was one hand, Joel, yeah. I'll go and then go to the back, the guy in the red T-shirt there, please, and then we'll kind of snake, snake down. 
Um, yeah, I missed the start of some of this discussion. Um, so if anything here is repeated, um, I'm sorry for it. The idea of generation comes from a kind of feeling at the end of the 19th century of degeneration, that something was being lost between uh, the, the kind of people at the end of that century um, whose uh, institutions, whose political life, um, whose understanding of the world around them wasn't being taken with the same kind of sense of duty or moral constitution by the generation um, that followed. And really that relies on quite an unfair, it's perfectly fine to admit, comparison between um, one set of people um, for a kind of you know, a, a factor of time um, and the next. And I think where this uh, discussion can get really problematic and why um, I'm, I'd be really worried if kind of people went away from this session feeling frustrated is that generations are quite a blunt, as has been said, um, are, are kind of quite a blunt instrument. It's a script that you don't have control of by virtue of the fact that you're placed in it. Cohort analysis is really useful for everyone who's not the person in that cohort because it's blind to everything you think is important, the kind of value content, the things that you really want to achieve. Um, and so actually, I think if... Um, we want to stop talking about generationalism. We have to end a kind of hypocrisy that, that can happen where we kind of self-consciously attribute some of the problems that we face as specifically <laughs> generational problems. And actually, um, you know, take issue with the world as, as students, people who are passionately engaged in the pursuit of knowledge or um, aspiring to a kind of life in university that will bring them closer to the best of what has been thought and read. Um, that might be, um, as citizens, you know, a really active category that we can use to reclaim some of the rights, some of the responsibilities that we feel are entitled to, and more of that language, less generational language. Hey, thanks. Uh, there's a guy in the red t-shirt right at the back there. You want to stand up? Thanks. Yeah, I'm obviously not a millennial, I'm nor am I a baby boomer. I'm 41 years old, so I'm halfway between. And I do have some sympathy with the um, you know, intergenerational complaints, but I lose sympathy when I hear the kind of self-pitying, uh, factually inaccurate stuff that I've heard a little bit on the stage today. It's just nonsense to claim that young people today are in a worse position than baby boomers were at the same age. Yeah, the economy has been poor the last 10 years, but the baby boomers were going to work in, in the 1970s. It was not a great time for the economy. Incomes have risen by, uh, by 100%. Incomes have doubled in real terms since the 1970s. Baby boomers, you know, not here to, you know, defend them particularly, but baby boomers, they, they got married quite young, they went to work, they slogged on, they didn't expect to be going around the world backpacking, as a lot of millennials do. They had it tougher, right? Things are not, there is no chance whatsoever that millennials are going to be poorer than the pre, my generation or, uh, or baby boomers. It's just not going to happen. So yeah, there are issues. Yes, there's a housing bubble in London. That seems to be mainly the, the, the real problem that some millennials are facing. There is a housing crisis. We need to build more houses. Fine. But just stop it with the self-pity. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a woman right just next, next to you there. So let's go there and then, then we'll, come down the, we'll come down the front. Um, so firstly, it's a bit frustrating when um, millennials are conflated with um, youth politics. Um, and I think the debate could be a much richer debate than that. Um, it's worth pointing out that millennials are fast becoming the largest generation, um, sort of beyond the um, baby boomers. And, 
you know, the age at which millennials are, are millennials are becoming CEOs, they are politicians, they, they are international leaders in many ways, so they're not young people. Um, the other thing that is often confused a little bit is that um, the millennials do play a bridge between the other generations. They're the, they're the, we are the um, generation that are becoming parents for the first time and have our parents moving into retirement. So my question is, what would it take to stop you know, to, for the debate or, um, or when people talk about this, to stop seeing millennials as kind of, you know, defining politics or looking at identities and sort of asking how do we talk about them and what sort of specimens are these and actually thinking about the more substantive implications of what we know about a cohort and what that means for the, the future, the future of leadership, the future of politics, the future of policymaking. Hey, thank you very much. Can we come down the front here? So there's uh, the young, young woman here, yeah. The voice of the youth. Um, moving on from those comments we just heard, I want to bring it back to something that was said in the panel earlier and back to this sort of idea that um, young people are sort of turning away from free speech. You can't say that, you offend me. Like, I just want to make the argument that we are probably the generation that is championing, championing free speech more than ever. Because when we make these arguments of maybe like no platforming a person who spews like anger and vitriol against a certain minority group, what we're doing is we're trying to ensure the free speech and the safety and the right to free speech of the minority group at that uni. So by monitoring free speech, we're not in any fact trying to turn it away. We're trying to hear voices that wouldn't have been heard otherwise. And we're trying to expand free speech as much as we can. And I think millennials and baby boomers and all those don't really realize that what we're trying to do is move forward rather than move backwards. Okay, thank you. Pass in front to you there. I have a question about schools when you're younger, because from my experience, when I was growing up, so when I was from when I was about 10 to about now, I feel like I can't say very much without the teachers being like, oh, you're doing this, you can't do that, oh, what's happened with your friends, you have to have, like in year five, we had to have counselling for our friendship group because we argued too much, which was a bit ridiculous. So I feel like it was the, more the schools that are cradling us than the parents and I thought I would have your views on that. Very good. Can you just pass it right behind you? Um, I wanted to um, ask about, um, I think I disagree with you, Bradley, on mental health. Um, I don't actually see the whole thing around the mental health as a positive thing. I think um, for the generation that are growing up now, if you look at schools, all the concern about mental health, the amount of people in, in, a, in a girl's class, in a girl's school, the amount of girls who are saying they've got anxiety. Um, and, you know, my son, who is 10, there are three boys in his class that have got anxiety who are being um, referred to child adolescent mental health services. So I, th I think that we do, we're doing young people a disservice by by um, medicalizing um, emotions at the moment. You know, I, I, I don't see that as a, a very positive thing. Okay, thanks. Can I see some more hands again? Um, so this young woman at the front has been waiting the longest. I've got about four minutes to take as many questions as we can, so let's uh, keep I do it have rolling. A question, but first, a gentleman at the back. Shelter released her figures in the Telegraph saying that since 1971, health prices have increased 43 times. Every night of wages increased 43 times over as well, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, haven't. Uh, but a question to the panel is, how do we stop the conflation between student politics and young people's politics? Because it's so important we get more young people involved in politics, but it's so become what student unions and student party politics do. For example, we saw this in the Labour Party with 
the Labour Party Youth Conference being primarily Labour students instead of Labour youth, which is what the conference was for. So how do we stop party politics and politicians conflating all young people with just those who want to go to university? Yeah, very good, very good question. Um, sorry, can I see some more hands? Let's go to the woman just behind there. Um, so building on the question a minute ago, I think you s there seems to be this idea that Generation Z are fragile and that we're running to safe spaces because we're scared, but actually couldn't you flip that on the other side and say that actually we're quite a strong generation and we're demanding the abolishment of bigotry and we're trying to fight something, not running away from it. We're trying to move forward, not be scared and run away. Thank you. Um, so I'll, there's a gentleman just on the second row. Then I'll come to you because you, you've been waiting a while. Can people just keep their hands up? Um, and then we'll go to you, you, and then we'll take the, the, two, the two women there. Yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, to, to describe a layer of uh, young people as somewhat self-absorbed with their identity as a problem, exemplified by, uh, I'm afraid, NUS, no platform policies and safe space policies, is not a slander on a generation. Um, I, it, I think what it does is relate to a problem in the politics of their parents' generations and past generations, which created, for example, really stifling, anti-bullying, anti-prejudice policies in schools. And many of those schools, and I worked, with them, worked in them 10 years ago, uh, interfered in childhood, effectively uh, shifting the baseline in child development uh, from building resilience to celebrating victimhood. And that, that's just, um, that explains something about the kind of me-focused layer who feel constantly offended and so on. But, you know, under that layer, that influential minority you find in, at campus level, you know, there's, there's a huge layer in this generation that, um, that exemplify an amazing super diversity and they are, in their own way, uh, if, until policy gets them, if you like, they are, they are uh, building and inventing a kind of model of, uh, of uh, resilient interaction uh, quite impressively in primary schools until along comes identity politics to essentialize issues about race and, and gender, and I think that is damaging. Okay, thank you. So the, the gentleman in the grey T-shirt, and then we'll go the guy in the white T-shirt, and then those, those two young women there. So there seems to be a general consensus uh, amongst both the panel and the rest of the audience that young people or mill the millennial generation have political ideas and want to be uh, politically active, and that it would be generally a good thing if they did become more politically engaged and more active, whether by turning out to vote or re-engaging with party politics, whether in a, a reimagining, which uh, Bradley, you've been talking about, or, or otherwise. My question is, given that we've got a backdrop of engagement via social media where there's a limit to the extent to which you can get in deep on issues and there's more um, desire for, to go for clickbait, headline-grabbing sensationalism, as well as, Bradley, the voices that you were talking about, especially on the regressive left, which try and shut down certain aspects of debate and dissenting viewpoints. Is there an argument, therefore, that we should have more of an emphasis on critical thinking in education in general in order for people to actually apply more scrutiny to policies rather than, for example, just tweeting memes of Jeremy Corbyn being an absolute boy and thinking that that's a good enough reason to vote for him? Okay, thank you. Uh, gentleman in the white shirt. Um, 
I think it's been mentioned recently now that uh, our generation has been so lucky because 50% of us get a higher education and that we should view that as a good thing. But I also believe that that's mainly because it's become so competitive that getting a proper job without a university education is near impossible nowadays. So we're being essentially, not saying that it's a bad thing, but we're being forced into university. Right, thank you. There are two, two young women. They'll be the last, last two speakers from the floor. Hi. Um, so if, we are, um, if we've decided that, um, as um, millennials and Generation um, Zers, that um, the narrative of being fragile snowflakes doesn't represent who we actually are, then why is this um, narrative, this idea, being pushed towards us and or being pushed into society and why are we being told, why is society being told that Generation Z um, people are fragile snowflakes? Thank you. Um, I'm just a bit confused about how we're defining generations. Um, the man at the front spoke about the difference between his experience of protest in Spain when he came to, uh, in comparison to when he came to what he heard in um, in the UK. And then uh, I think it was Elise who spoke about um, uh, the a kind of sense of a global competition uh, for wages, housing, um, jobs. And I just want to ask so is are you defining or do you think that generation generation gaps generational generations in themselves are they something that is national or are they inherently supranational sort of a, a, a more of a global idea and um, thank you hey Brian. thank you for all your um uh, questions and participation i'm going to come back give the speakers one last minute to sum up the whole debate and maybe reach some kind of conclusion as possible i'll go in reverse order so so would you please eliza um, one of the um, key statistics, I think, which reveals a lot is that there are five markers of adulthood. It's leaving home, finishing your education, financially, fina financial, independence from your um, financial independence from your parents, getting married and having kids. The average age of a woman achieving those five markers of adulthood in 1966 was 27. The average age of a man was 28. Now, it is exactly 10 years later. The average age of a woman achieving those five markers is 37, and, and for men, it's a year later. What that tells you is we are experiencing a generation or generations that are having extended adolescence. And what that is doing is having a fundamental impact on society, politics, policy, economics, you name it. Every branch of culture, society is, is affected by those facts. I think one word we haven't heard today, which is ultimately the most important defining issue, is technology. Technology defines Generation Z and Millennials. They are the originators of the sharing economy, but also of the selfie. They are the heightened individualists, but also those that believe in communities, specifically online communities. So I think, actually, I'm very optimistic about millennials, and particularly Generation Z, who I think are slightly more grounded, um, and the okay, way in sorry, which they're going to embrace I, the modern world. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Good optimistic point to end on. Bradley? Uh, yeah, just to quickly answer my uh, critics, um, I think in terms of mental health, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't necessarily saying, I think, um, proliferation of, of mental health issues and seeing everything from a mental health lens is a good thing. What I was more referring to is the ability to, the willingness to kind of challenge kind of injustices um, and forms of oppression based on identity. 
Um, but, I, but I also would caveat with what I started off with what I was saying is that mental health is actually incredibly complex. And for me, a mental health diagnosis is not a political issue. It, it's actually a clinical issue. So yes, there might be, you might look and say, oh, all these people are being diagnosed with anxiety. Surely they can't all be anxious. Maybe they're not, but I don't actually think that's something that I really want to have a political debate about because I, I simply don't have the expertise or knowledge to determine if someone is actually suffering from clinical anxiety or not. Um, regarding the 70s, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't dismissing um, uh, the economic realities of the 70s. Um, and, and to me, I mean, to some extent, I don't really care if millennials have it worse or better than, than previous generations. That, I, I'm a socialist. So that's not my analysis. My analysis is a, is a class one, uh, and it's about power structures within society. Um, what, I, what I would say, what, the only thing I would say to that is that the 70s was a, a certain period of time, a, a, a finite period of time, in which there was an economic crisis with capital. And that obviously brought um, harsh economic realities. What I'm arguing is, from the 80s onwards, what you do see is a, a, a sustained period of decline in growth levels, productivity levels, uh, stagnant wages. It, you're shaking your head, but the evidence is there. It, it's it's there across across the it's, it's across the world. Anyway, so um, Bradley, I'm just gonna yeah. So so to me, it's more about our class analysis. Bradley, I'm not I'll, well. I'll stop you there. Yeah. Just are, are we experiencing a youth quake, or is it generation snowflake? Yes or no? It's, become, it's becoming a youth quick. Good, thank you. And Jenny? <laughs> okay, and the snowflake generation um, is given voice by a vocal minority. It doesn't represent the whole of the generation. If you don't like it, then reclaim your own voice. That's what I would say. And stop other people speaking on your behalf. Um, are you actually a strong generation that's fighting for something and fighting to defend freedom of speech? You don't get, you don't defend freedom of speech by banning things. It's really obvious. You fight bigotry by arguing with them. <laughs> Universities, events like these, public spaces everywhere should be places where you argue with people about why they're wrong. You don't just go, you're wrong, shut up. I'm going to get you banned. And that is, the, that is a real problem with the mentality of today. I'm not saying it's all coming from young people. I think there's a lot of kind of doing it, thinking in advance that this is what young people want, which I think does university students and you guys a real disservice. So let's have genuine free speech and let's start uh, fighting genuine battles. Okay, thank you. Can we have a round of applause, please? One last announcement. Um, don't, don't, if you haven't had a chance yet to walk around the ideas market on the foyer, do it. It's great. Don't forget, there's, one, there's a few last sessions left. Islamic terror, rage against machines, what is fascism, loads to do. Thank you all for participating. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.